This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Miles Danhausen Jr., writer and editor of the Peninsula Pulse. Over the past couple of months, we have been working in support of the team at Wisconsin Watch on a series of articles investigating the, the many impacts that fluctuating water levels are having on not just our shorelines, but on our budgets and on the ecosystem of the Great Lakes. The series features photos from Brett Kozmeiter and the Pulse Archives and reporting by Mario Coran. On Saturday, the first in this series was released, a story called The Water Always Wins, calls to protect shorelines as Valdale Lake, Michigan, inflicts a heavy toll. The story examines how a climate tug-of-war is driving extreme shifts in Lake Michigan's water levels and how northeastern Wisconsin communities are trying to protect their shorelines from the volatile water levels in the coming years. Today, Mario Coran joins me on the podcast to talk about what he discovered. Mario Coran, thanks for joining us on the Door County Pulse podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, I want to get started. I mean, this is, it's a really wide-ranging look at the lakes that you've started on here or, and at, at lake levels, specifically in Door County, but up and down the Lake Michigan shoreline. What turned you and the, the folks at Wisconsin Watch onto this idea of digging into the, the way the lake levels are impacting shoreline and municipalities? Yeah, well, I think most basically this landed on my radar because my editors told me to do it, right? <laughs> I'm in the habit of, <laughs> of doing what my editors tell me to do. But um, more seriously, um, this landed on the radar of Wisconsin Watch for a couple of reasons. One, this is part of our new news collaboration, which is a collaboration of six newsrooms in the Fox Valley, northeastern Wisconsin region that are, um, you know, working together to really highlight issues that may get lost or may just need to be elevated a bit more as a region. And when we're thinking about Lake Michigan and the Great Lakes in general, you know, it's it's hard. You'd be hard pressed to find, I think, a more uh, central issue to many people's lives than the fluctuation of the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. And the second piece I think that turned us on to this was uh, we had heard that the Department of Natural Resources, the DNR, had a strategic analysis underway. And so, you know, the purpose of this analysis, as we understand it, is to really, you know, well, let me back up a step in reaching out to the DNR to find out what prompted this analysis and what they'll be looking at. Um, this analysis was really prompted by the past 10 years or recent years of, of water fluctuation and shoreline erosion that that has caused. So this uh, strategic analysis will take a look and try to get a better handle or a better idea of what the erosion looks like, what sorts of costs means to homeowners and public and private entities up and down the shoreline. So that is underway right now. We don't have answers, but um, it's in the public scoping process. So just knowing that that was underway was, I think, uh, incentive for us to really dig into it right now. Yeah. And when you're talking about that analysis that they're undertaking, you know, this is in regards to, and, and folks in Door County will be very familiar with this, is all the work that's being done on our shorelines as people try to, in some years, it's been combating low water by doing dredging. And now in the past couple of years, it's been competing with the high water by putting in new revetments. And I say revetment, I'm used to saying that word, but I guess like the the layperson, it's probably better understood as big rock walls on the shoreline of some sort. Right. And, and it's been happening up and down the peninsula. So I think, I don't know if you've been able to find out like just how many permits 
that have been applied for or how many of these types of activities are going on around our, our Door County or statewide? So when we're looking at permits, um, these are broken down by individual permits that have been requested you know, by private homeowners looking to construct in their shoreline. So in 2018, we had 61 permits approved. And this is, I should also note that this is specific mostly to the Door County region. And that's mm. because it's considered by DNR standards to be a protective or sensitive habitat where these permits would have to be requested elsewhere along the central to southeastern shoreline falls under an exemption. So, mm. you know, for, for certain kinds of work, if it meets department standards, you know, they can just add those revetments. They don't have to reapply for a permit. Mm. So this applies most specifically to the Door County Peninsula. And in 2018, uh, we had 61 approved. And, you know, as you know, the, this is during a period where water is rising. Um, in 2019, we had 98 approved. And in 2020, um, we had 136 approved. Hmm. So so these are jumping. And that may not be a, a holistic look at it because we also know that there's a backlog right. of, of permits that are just kind of waiting in queue. Now, emergency self-certifications. Now, this, is, this can happen when property or bluffs, homes are being directly threatened and meet the criteria by the DNR. Uh, so those are also jumping um, by about the same, roughly about the same margin. So in, through 2016 through 2018, we had 30 um, emergency self-certifications. And by the year 2021, we had 98 submitted and um, 63 approved. So those are also jumping, long way of saying. And, you know, we think, reasonable to assume, and, and uh, you know, people that we've talked to up and down the shoreline, we really get a sense that this is just one indicator of the concern that people have felt during those, you know, those, those years as water was rising. And, of course, we have... Um, storms in the region that could, could potentially have more waves that cause more damage. You know, as, as the water's rising and getting closer to the homes, people feel that sense of urgency. This is one indicator of those. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I did a, a story on the high cost of high water and there were a couple of homeowners who were taking drastic measures because their, their homes were like kind of in that Whitefish Bay area, Lily Bay, Whitefish Bay. That's basically all down by the like Glidden Drive and the Whitefish Dunes area for those unfamiliar um, on the lake side of the peninsula. And they were getting battered by wave action and their homes were actually threatened, um, getting very close to just starting to sink into the lake. And we, we really don't think of that as the kind of thing that happens in Door County. That's the kind of thing you see on pictures of other parts of the country or in California where, where homes are, are sliding off of bluffs into the water. But there were a few homes that were starting to feel pretty close to that. You mentioned all the permitted actions, but there's also, and I haven't heard anything about like putting this in into the equation, but there's a lot of little actions that people are taking on their own shorelines without going the permitting route too. So that only captures the people who are going the official route to take care of their shoreline. Absolutely. Yes. Good point. Because I, I know a couple of homeowners who have had, you know, with, with massive low water and then the high water just washing away trees on their shoreline, kind of changing what the habitat looks like in those areas for fish and wildlife. So it is a really interesting problem. And the, and the scope is so huge because some of those permits, you know, you're talking municipalities doing work along miles of shoreline. Take Ephraim, for example, is one that you write about in, in your story and all the work that they've gone into. So... These, obviously, they're not just shoreline impacts. They don't just change the look of the shoreline. They don't just change habitat. But this is real money we're talking about. Right, right. Absolutely. As you started diving into this, like what what are some of the t the scope of the, the financial ramifications of this from a, a municipal? Obviously, you probably can't detail what private homeowners are spending. But 
were you able to come up, find some estimates of what people were spending or what municipalities are spending on these efforts to protect the shoreline? Yeah, that's a great question. And also, I need to uh, give credit where credit is due. And a lot of the work that you've done over the years really informed our reporting. Um, in fact, one of the um, homeowners that you had just mentioned up near Whitefish Dunes Bay has his house, or the his house seems to be creeping closer and closer to the water. I was able to chat with him just to follow up, you know, since your hmm. story published, how things are looking. And, um, you know, just a thumbnail estimate of something like that on a very small scale. Um, and I think you had also mentioned this in your story. I mean, you're looking at $250 per linear feet, for, excuse me, per linear foot. And if you're looking at a 150 foot long shoreline, you know, that's upwards of $37,000 <laughs> if my math is accurate. So, you know, these aren't small figures. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't have $37,000 laying around. <laughs> no. um, <laughs> Not in my petty cash drawer right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. And, and then trying to take this to a larger scale, right. For even a, a small township like Ephraim or for a mid-sized city like Sheboygan, a little bit further down the coast, that is, you know, that can be a, a serious strain on, on the budget. So uh, we were able to talk with the mayor of Sheboygan um, and he talked about some of these challenges, the need to add additional break walls or to, you know, break up the wave energy and protect some of the infrastructure. They're dealing with, you know, when the, a high wave action comes in, their boardwalk gets flooded. You know, that's a serious threat to businesses. Mm -hmm. You can close down shops. So, you know, in, in that sense, in one regard, the costs are very difficult to measure what it could mean for the local economy. For example, in Ephraim, if parts of the downtown are taped off and, you know, people can't get an ice cream and look at the you know, the sunset, you might not get that. And those those costs are difficult to measure. But we yeah. do know one reason that I mentioned uh, Mr. Ryan Swartzen is because he is a, a board member of the Great Lakes and St. Lawrence River Cities Initiative, which is a group mm. of, of mayors in the region that are concerned about shoreline damage um, and shoreline erosion precipitated by climate change. And so one figure that they've estimated is that they say that cities along the region will be looking at a cost of $2 billion over the next five years. Wow. To make these infrastructure adjustments and, you know, repairs that are needed. Breaking Wisconsin's share out of that is about $245 million. So, you know, from a regional and from a statewide scale, these are very large numbers. Yeah. When you're looking at Door County specifically, if you start to think about the municipality spend and the private property owner spend, you, you definitely get into the easily well into the millions of dollars. And, you right. know, you, you mentioned Ephraim, you know, that's a, a village known for its it's picturesque aesthetic. And two years ago, when water levels were at its highest, and even still this year, there some of this is still there, but you have a lot of these piers and a lot of the shoreline that just had those kind of cinder block temporary revetments put in, really changes the, the look and feel of Ephraim if you're walking through and you're looking at that versus the normal shoreline landscape. And then you have places like the Hardy Gallery that were threatened by storm action. There was real concern that if the water levels stayed as high as they were, that last winter and the year before that, that, you know, a, a bad storm might come and, and send a huge ice chunk through the Hardy Gallery and just obliterate that that barn on that pier. It didn't happen. And luckily, the, the water levels have gone down a little bit. But as we 
as you discuss all these issues, there's there's the one at least locally famous incident where an ice shove went into a cottage in Southern Door County. Luckily, nobody was home because that ice shove went right onto the into the bedroom. But and then we had some battered shorelines in Ephraim around Thanksgiving a couple of winters ago. But we actually kind of got off easy because there weren't a lot of major November storms that brought those huge north winds in. Um, otherwise, we might have been in much worse shape in, in terms of some of our shoreline and our piers. And, and we had a lot of damage as it was. So we kind of got lucky. But all of this falls into that, you know, 2013, we had record low years. And I was reporting about, hey, what are we going to do as these lake levels go or, or lake levels continue to decline? Are we looking at a permanently altered shoreline from the low level perspective? And then that rapidly turned around to these incredibly high levels. Now it's dropped a little bit. Like maybe give us some perspective on what you discovered when you look at like, why is that happening? And, and is this abnormal? Is this just cyclical? You know, you talk to old timers, they're like, yeah, it always goes up, it always goes down. That's just normal. It's what happens. But is it from what you discovered? One thing that I discovered as, um, you know, I, I reported along Door County and went up to uh, Washington Island and spent a couple of nights there. And uh, one thing that I discovered is that it's difficult to find places to eat off season at night. So <laughs> yes, um, one. I found, my, <laughs> found myself at the local tavern to grab a burger. It was one of the few establishments open and just talking to people that have lived there their whole life. This is certainly um, an issue that they're familiar with. Yes, the water goes up, the water goes down. It's, you kind of become an expected part of life for them. But when we look at the water data, for example, from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, we do see these dramatic swing, one particular dramatic swing in the past 10 years. So normally, water levels fluctuate. Um, they can go up or down every three to 10 years, sometimes less, sometimes more. But what's happened in the past 10 years is we had a record low, as you said, in 2013 to a record high in 2020, which is a swing of six feet. And so people like you know Mike Carr who you know helps you helps public and private entities either protect shorelines or dredge during low water years we have ferry boat captains people that are really in this issue every day of their lives saying that this is the most dramatic swing that they've seen in their hmm. lifetimes and expressing you know some sort of some some fear and surprise about that what does this mean for the future so yes while it is a part of life i think it's you know its complexion is changing and I think that there is concern about what that means currently, but also what to do to prepare for these, these swings in the future if they continue as climate experts expect them to do or predict that they'll do. Yeah. What is the role of, of climate change in all of this? Because generally when we talk about climate change and sea levels, we fixate on the oceans. We fixate on what's happening in Miami and what's happening along the eastern seaboard or on the west coast in California. We don't talk a lot about, or at least the national conversation doesn't talk a lot about the Great Lakes when it comes to climate change. We feel pretty sheltered and safe here. What, right. if any, impacts have did you discover or did people kind of warn you about that, that maybe we should be thinking about more here? Yeah, yeah. So I think one reason that it stands out while we think about the change in water levels along the seaboard is because, you know, oceans and, and the seas are are rising fairly steadily. I can't tell you how much it, it rises each year, but it's rising as, as glaciers melt, they're rising pretty steadily. Compared to lakes, on the other hand, we're talking about you know, a less predictable sort of rise and fall. 
And mm. so it's less of a, a direct link or a less obvious link between climate change and lake level. But, you know, in starting to peel back the layers of this onion, we, you know, talked to some climate experts, a number at the University of Michigan, who have, you know, great experts there on staff and professors there who have really studied this. And what we've come away with is this understanding of the Great Lakes water levels are driven in large part by rainfall and precipitation, right? Water comes in through rainfall, it, it evaporates, goes down, rising temperatures. And what we find over the Midwest, over the Great Lakes region, is this really sort of interesting interplay, this tug of war, as one expert calls it, between temperatures that are rising in the region faster than they are in other parts of the United States and more frequent and intense storms. So what this leads to, in short, is these fluctuating lake levels that rise and fall quite dramatically. But it also means that during those high water years, we're getting more frequent and intense storms. And when there's more water in the system, there's more energy in those waves that can cause more damage. So while it may not be a steady rise that we're seeing. You know, the, the, the prediction is that these, these fluctuations and these severe weather events have become a, a bit more of the norm and we we'll, are expected to continue moving into the future. Yeah. So in the, in the Midwest, we're kind of victims of the unpredictability. And, you know, a, a good example of that is back when, when the water levels were low, nobody anticipated having to talk about high water levels. Like there, it was, we were actually talking about you know, should people be lowering break walls? Should be people be taking rock away since the water was so low just to improve the view? And right. I, I know I had those discussions with people too. And that it really like, and I think your article details this a little bit, like that polar vortex winter when it was just so cold up here and throughout the Midwest and set those record freezing temperatures for so many days below zero, so many days of schools being canceled back in, I think, 2013, 2014. We're still feeling the effects of that, right? Because that, that ice cover that was created then and that really harsh winter prevented so much of that evaporation. So that, that if you think of the polar vortex as like one big, major, unpredictable storm event, <laughs> that is really what yep. that eventually brought those water levels back, correct? Absolutely. And that's what one expert, uh, Drew Gronwald, who has studied this, this tug of war effect. And that's, you know, exactly what he pointed to is an unpredictable weather event like the polar vortex. Um, you know, leading up to that, people were, as you say, concerned that this would just become the norm and we're, you know, stuck with low water forever. And yet, you know, here comes this unpredictable weather event which nobody predicted six months earlier that really changed the, the course of the next, you know, seven to eight years. So yeah, like, like you mentioned, it's, it's very difficult to predict. And, uh, you know, I think we're just beginning to get a grasp on that as knowledge continues to evolve. Yeah. The more we know, the more it seems like we don't know Jack. <laughs> you, uh, <laughs> you mentioned Mike Carr earlier. And when you talk about the Puritans up on the, the Washington Island ferry line, you know, they got to they got to deal with the lake every single day. Mike Carr right. has got to deal with the phone calls and the dredging and the riprap issues. All that, that that's their lives. What did you learn talking to a guy like Mike Carr? Um, locally, he's he's a bombastic guy. He's a great go to source, really knowledgeable guy who studies his issues. And I think one of your things was that he told you is I'd rather not have this work. I would rather not have to be uh, going to people and having to charge them a ton of money to, to fix these issues. But it's right now it's a good living, too. <laughs> 
Right, right. Yeah, so that's, that's in fact, one of the reasons that I thought he was a, a good voice in the story. And one of the reasons that I sought him out as a voice is because, one, he's, he's a person that is on the, the water every day and has seen this and has, has been there for the low water, the high water. And, you know, over the course of a 30-year career, 40 years on the water, you know, he's seen, you know, all it has to throw at him. Mike Carr, I found him to be a really interesting character. Personally, he, you know, he has that education. Uh, he's a civil engineer by training. He has this, you know, lengthy resume of experience on the water. But he's also, as you say, you know, he can be just bombastic. He can be quite plain spoken. He doesn't come across as somebody with, you know, airs. He comes across as a seasoned veteran who has, <laughs> you know, been in the trenches and, and can report back what he says. Yeah. One of the things about guys like my car, people who have that perspective, not just hey, I've been up here for five years doing this work. I'm coming in to make some money and I'm leaving. But people who have seen the shorelines here and are familiar with it over so much time, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, or when you talk about people like the Puritans at the ferry line, those are people who really know what they're talking about versus, you know, the complaints of, say, a summer homeowner who bought a house to retire or as a summer vacation home five years ago. You know, that perspective still has merit, but you know, just doesn't have that breadth of experience with what we're talking about. Yeah. And, and just to add to what you had mentioned earlier, I mean, Mike Carr is, you know, in, a, in our interview, you know, he did talk about how he talked himself out of work, how he has, um, you know, advised people against a more expensive project or even to wait on occasion until, um, you know, conditions are better for the project that they're hoping to do. So, you know, I don't know about you, but you know, when I encounter that kind of person, whether it's in a store, you know, somebody doesn't upsell me and gives me the straight facts, even if it doesn't isn't beneficial to them. You know, I, I tend to find more credibility in that opinion. So from a storytelling perspective, you know, that I think makes him a particularly credible voice in the story. But mm -hmm. it also gives more weight to the advice that he issues that, you know, now that we're not sitting at a record high, you know, now that water has dipped, I think about a foot and a half from last year from the record high, you know, now we have a little bit more wiggle room. Now we have a little bit more space to construct, to launch into some of these construction projects, to adjust our docks, to take action now while we have some breathing room instead of waiting until the water is, you know, lapping at our, at our, at our dock's edge or at the foot of our hole. Right. Saturday's article is, is the first in a series. What else is coming our way from some of the reporting you've been working on? Yeah, so we're taking a, a three-story approach to this series, um, and we're taking a look at like, two other aspects. So the first one we really tried to kind of lay out the scope of the problem from a broader lens, from a 10,000-foot view, but also kind of bring in some of the climate change aspects of this story that we had just talked about earlier. For the next story, we're going to take a really dig in and take a closer look at the erosion and some of the structures that people have built to protect their beaches and protect their homes from this. And some of the downstream effects that those, that those structures can have on your neighbors. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that I really took away that I learned as I reported the series is that in some ways for a beach to stay, stay the same, it has to be able to change. So what I mean by that is that, you know, I, I began, you know, I had always thought of the beaches as sort of a fixed place. Like you buy your property and the beach is there, you know, yeah. that beach is where it was supposed to be 30 years ago. That's what the property but, owner wants you know, anyway. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, right, right. But, you know, taking a closer look, like this is the shoreline is really a living, sort of breathing, almost an organism that has to kind of recede, that has to grow. This is a part of the natural process, right? Mm-hmm. So when we construct these, these shoreline barriers to protect our property, we're changing all that. We are maybe blocking some of the sand that, that our beach needs to be replenished. And, it, you know, it could have downstream impacts to our neighbors. So we're, you know, folding that into the second story and taking it, you know, really digging into that. The third story is the impact on public spaces, particularly public parks in the county, but also, you know, south along the uh, Lake Michigan shoreline. But, you know, one beach that has been particularly impacted, one park that we talked about earlier is Whitefish Dune State Park, where these famous dunes have been um, built up over time because of this, this sort of traveling sand that gets pushed up and pushed up by the wind into these great, beautiful dunes. And that also is vulnerable to erosion during high water years. Sure. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned white festoons. Could you think of that? If that were all private shoreline that people had individually taken some measures to protect their shoreline, you know, you'd, you'd never have the dunes in the first place or the Ridges Sanctuary, you know, that those kind of things. Although the Ridges is a much longer time cycle. But that's that's a really good point. And I think if you go down to that Whitefish Dunes area, you can see in some spots where one neighbor has just put in steel riprap and the other, the person right down the street from them has not. And you can see how dramatically what one neighbor does can impact somebody else's property and shoreline. And right. even if you look at an old aerial photo of, say, Bailey's Harbor, I think I have an old postcard, before they put in the, the larger, not that it's a large marina, but the marina that Bailey's Harbor has now, all of the harbor used to be like kind of one big sand beach one big moon crescent moon shaped beach and now that marina structure has kind of created this this stop of the sand along that shoreline so it is what we think of as the pristine version of door county today or in the last 20 or 30 years if you went back further you'd have a a much different look at that just because we've altered those shorelines with some of those piers so much you know thing that i i wonder Curious where you came to after in your reporting after doing a lot of work on this ten years ago or something. I think I ended up writing an article like that asked the question like Is it time to leave the lakes alone? Like can can man really manipulate it? We just end up like we we create one thing to fix one problem and then we build something else to fix the problem we created with the the previous fix. And I'm I'm curious what where your reporting took you on that question of you know how how far do you go before you just say all right maybe we should just maybe not do anything and just deal with it and just accept the ebbs and flows of the lake. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that, especially when we consider the downstream effects that protecting or armoring the shoreline could have to the surrounding ecosystem, which your neighbor's property, you know, I think that that is in at least is a reasonable place to land on. Maybe we should just, or a reasonable question at least to land on is maybe we should just leave this all alone and let nature take its course. You know, I, I, I think that that is probably a very difficult pill for somebody to swallow if they <laughs> owned a home or bought a home or, you know, have had a, had a home that has been passed down through generations, right? They don't want to necessarily hear that or leave it to that. And I can, I can understand that. But, you know, I think in talking with experts, professors about some of this, a couple of elements stand out is that one, that there are parts along the shoreline, uh, particularly those around cities, um, maybe if it's close to a, uh, a vital piece of infrastructure. You know, there are places along the shoreline that need to be hardened or have already been hardened and should probably stay hardened, right? So mm-hmm. the, the ship has sailed. 
on yeah. those areas. And, and uh, you know, those places have been permanently altered, and we should probably keep those up. But there are other parts along the shoreline that are less developed, right? And we could be taking steps to, I guess, lessen lessen our footprints there. So, you know, there is, a, I, I think, a growing, growing call, a growing awareness that there are alternative ways of protecting shorelines that we could be exploring. One of them um, is what what's referred to as nature-based solutions. And it's exactly what it sounds like, using nature to protect the shoreline, but not, not necessarily protect protect it or armor it, but to build a resilient shoreline hmm. that isn't a hundred percent protected maybe, but when when there is some erosion, when it is impacted, it has the ability to bounce back with fewer impacts and permanent impacts to the to the ecosystem. So just one I think more famous example of of this we see in the Netherlands. So in the Netherlands, um, along the water um, they've also experienced and had concerns with shoreline erosion as sea levels continue to rise. And they took what may be a very surprising tact. And it was certainly surprising to people uh, as they saw it, is they essentially dumped a big mountain of sand on the beach. And, um, and they didn't do anything with it. They just kind of let it sit there. And people were like, what is this big, big mountain of sand? What's going on with it? But slowly over time, the wind continued to push the sand and basically move the sand into protective barriers. And the sand, surprisingly, ended up exactly where it needed to be to protect the shoreline and is continued to be a functioning barrier. And there are all sorts of ways that we could be thinking about incorporating nature to do the kind of work that we want to do to accomplish the same goals that we want to accomplish anyways. Um, and often these, these these come in at a much cheaper cost. Again, you may not have the sort of shoreline armoring that we think of when we think about protection, right? We want we might want to be protected 100% and have no budge to it. Yeah. Um, but these are better for the ecosystem. These are often cheaper, viable alternatives that could be explored up and down the coast, your huh. shoreline. I'll have to look for that example from the Netherlands. Thanks for bringing that up. So these these stories will be coming out about once a week over the next couple of weeks. And then on November 4th, there's a special event at Crossroads at Big Creek. Can you tell our listeners what's going on there, um, how they can participate, and who's all going to going to be there? Yeah, so um, we've got uh, the event coming up on November 4th, as you mentioned, at Crossroads at Big Creek. This is uh, uh, 2041 Michigan Street in Sturgeon Bay. So basically, we are bringing together a panel of three experts or people that you know have been uh, immersed in this issue. So we talked about uh, Ryan Sorensen, Mayor Sheboygan. Um, he's going to be there. Uh, we got Mike Fries, Director of Resource Policy Team at the Wisconsin Coastal Management. He will be joining us, as well as Tony Gilbert, Executive Director of Midwest Environmental Advocate. I will be moderating this event, and basically we will be talking about, we'll be having a discussion about many of the same issues that we've discussed today, but it will also be uh, a conversation, meaning that we are hoping you know those who join us can participate and maybe tell us what we've been missing, uh, what what we may do well to think about in some of this coverage, and 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 engage with the with the panelists as they give their take on what we should be thinking about. Uh, the event is free. It is meant for folks who are vaccinated, and you can also stream online. All right. So that link is available. All right. Excellent. And we will put that link um, in the uh, description for this podcast if any of our listeners want to check that out. And we also have some information about that in the Peninsula Pulse next week. 
And I'm sure we'll be sending that out in our emails and things. So keep an eye on that and on Facebook. So Mario, thanks for taking some time to talk through this. And, and thanks for all your work on this article and for working with us here at the the Pulse on this topic. I think it's obviously one of the most important things that, you know, the, the water around us here in Door County is a constant topic of conversation and it's a constant topic of concern. So thanks so much for digging into it and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Miles. And thanks for all your help and support. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast and we will see you next time.